Good morning, Christ Central Church. My name is Dina Jabour, and I am one of the women shepherds here, and I'm also a member of the Chantilly Community Group. Our scripture reading this morning is from the book of 2 Samuel, chapter 11, verses 1 through 5, 14 through 17, and 26 through 27 in the New Living Translation. In the spring of the year, when kings normally go out to war, David sent Joab and the Israelite army to fight the Ammonites. They destroyed the Ammonite army and laid siege to the city of Rabbah. However, David stayed behind in Jerusalem. Late one afternoon, after his midday rest, David got out of bed and was walking on the roof of the palace. As he looked out over the city, he noticed a woman of unusual beauty taking a bath. He sent someone to find out who she was, and he was told, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Iliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her, and when she came to the palace, he slept with her. She had just completed the purification rites after having her menstrual period. Then she returned home. Later, when Bathsheba discovered that she was pregnant, she sent David a message saying, I'm pregnant. So the next morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and gave it to Uriah to deliver. The letter instructed Joab, station Uriah on the front lines where the battle is fiercest, then pull back so that he will be killed. So Joab assigned Uriah to a spot close to the city wall where he knew the enemy's strongest men were fighting. And when the enemy soldiers came out of the city to fight, Uriah the Hittite was killed along with several other Israelite soldiers. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. When the period of mourning was over, David sent for her and brought her to the palace, and she became one of his wives. Then she gave birth to a son, but the Lord was displeased with what David had done. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, Christ Central. You may be wondering at this point, um, you know, it's a new year, and uh, <laughs> what in the world does this passage have to do with the new year? And uh, why are we still talking about Christmas? And uh, we've been in this series now for a few weeks where we've been looking at the women of Christmas. These are uh, particular women who are part of Jesus' heritage, and I, my part of my burden this morning is to connect the dots for us this morning as we kind of look at that. So as we look at, uh, as we look at the life of Bathsheba, hopefully we get some clarity on Jesus, the meaning of Christmas, and even something to help us in this new year. Um, just to quickly remind you, let me, let me go ahead and just read from uh, some of the first verses here of that genealogy in Matthew chapter 1. And here's what Matthew writes. He says this. He says, this is the record of the ancestors of Jesus the Messiah, a descendant of David and of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac was the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Perez was the father of Hezron. Hezron was the father of Ram. Ram was the father of Aminadab. Aminadab was the father of Nashon. Nashon was the father of Salmon. Salmon was the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz was the father of Obed, whose mother 
was Ruth. Let me stop right there. So already we've kind of looked at three of these different women in this genealogy. Rahab, Tamar, and Ruth. Now what's so amazing about this is uh, it's, it's kind of like as you, you look at who these different people are, and we've already kind of looked at some of their lives and what they've gone through. Right? So you get the story of Tamar, if you go back and listen to those sermons, the story of Rahab, who was, uh, uh, was a prostitute, and also Ruth, right, who was a Gentile. Like, what is, what is going on here with Jesus' genealogy? The genealogy of the Messiah, the one who is appointed to be king over Israel, has God crafted some kind of birther controversy around Jesus? Right? I mean, just I mean, think about this. All right? So remember the main thrust of the Christmas, of the Christmas message, and that is the Christian message as a whole. This is it's about Jesus' supremacy over Caesar and every other ruler of this world. Right? It's the, 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 Christmas, the, the Christian message proclaims that Jesus is Lord, and, th- and therefore Caesar is not, and the other, other kings of the world are not. Right? And so, but the, the critics of our day in popular media say that the Gospels were created to dominate right, uh, over the competition. Right? And this is, uh, but if, if, if this is the case, if you're, if you're creating the, these, these, you know, the Gospels so that you can win uh, this competition for the hearts of the people religiously, politically, and socially, then right, your, your ruler is going to lose appeal with this kind of background. Right? Well, these, what you, like, why would you put these women in there? You would take them out right, if you want to win an appeal. Uh, if the Gospels are simply a tool used by the institutional church to gain social and political power, then this genealogy does not make sense unless it's true. Somebody ought to say amen to that. I mean, uh, uh, right? Un- unless it's true. Right? What, what we have before us, this, is, is given to us by God. It is true. The Bible can be relied upon. The scriptures that are given to us are factual and they are true. And here's another thing, and this is kind of getting to the, I'm already getting to the, to the punchline for, for this morning, but I want you to think about this, that as you look at this genealogy of Jesus already, as you reflect on this, you see that God does not hide, he does not erase, he does not excuse shame or controversy in our stories, but rather uses it for the glory of Jesus Christ. Let me say that again. God does not hide, I need some more coffee. God does not hide. He does not erase, he does not cover up, he does not excuse, he does not try to throw away the shame and the controversy and the wounds of our past, but rather takes it, redeems it, and uses it to glorify Jesus in our lives and through our lives. If God will do this for Jesus, looking at his genealogy, how much more will he do it for us? The Apostle Paul said, what what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Somebody ought to say all. God said he gives us all things, right? Okay, and then look again at the the genealogy. I didn't finish. I didn't finish. I got to go back to the text. I didn't finish. Okay. 
chapter, um, verse, verse 4, if you have your Bibles, you look at in, in verse 5, in chapter 1, it says, well, let me go back. So Boaz was the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed was the father of Jesse. Jesse was the father of King David. Mm-hmm. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother was Bathsheba, the widow of Uriah. The widow of Uriah. Now, we just read from the New Living Translation, but in some other translations, Bathsheba's name is not even in there. Like, it just says the, the, the widow of Uriah. Her name is not even in there, right? So in some other translations, we, uh, as we look at this, we go, okay, I, where's her name? Right? Hashtag say her name. Say her name, right? Bathsheba was dishonored, right? She was dishonored, and, and even though her wounds did not define her, I think what the scriptures want us to see is that her wounds matter. Her dishonor would not be forgotten. And here's what I want us to think about this morning. To remember as we dig into this text together that the honor of the abused is written into the very story of the Savior to birth something new into our stories. God has a heart for the abused. And the honor of the abused is written into the story of our Savior so that he will birth something new into our stories. As we apply this to our lives for this new year, three things. Uh, you don't have them before, or maybe you do. Three points you have before you, which is, which is this. Uh, how We need to look at how Bathsheba was dishonored. Then we're going to look at why she was dishonored, and then how her honor was restored, how Bathsheba was dishonored, why she was dishonored, and how her honor was restored. How was she dishonored? Well, simply put, she was sexually abused. Let me say this already before I even go any further into this sermon. I'm not going to get into details there would not be anything graphic that I get into. However, just the mention of this topic may be a trigger for some. I just want to give you the freedom to say, hey, if I, I think I need to step out of the room for a minute or something like that. If you're triggered by this, anything in this conversation, please don't feel any shame. If you need to do that, that is totally fine. And at the end of this, I will tell you about some ways in which you can receive some help. All right. Having said that, she was sexually abused. Let's look at this. In 2 Samuel chapter 11, um, just starting at verse 2. This is amazing. Okay? Um, it says, late one afternoon, after his midday rest, David's midday one, not the morning one, the midday one, okay, David got out of bed. He had several. All right. David got out of bed and was walking on the roof of the palace. And as he looked out over the city, he noticed a woman of unusual beauty taking a bath. He sent someone to find out who she was. And he was told she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. And then get this. Here's what we just read something like uh, verse 4. Verse 4, let's keep going. Verse 4 says, 
Then David sent messengers to get her, and when she came to the palace, he slept with her. Okay. Now, this is a New Living Translation, and I think, like, the, the, uh, the editors here were trying to, you know, like, editors, like, they take certain liberties to kind of help clarify some of what's going on in the text. This is one that's a, what they did a translation here that's different from some of the other translations, such as the ESV or the New American Standard or the King James. And the reason why I bring this up is because as you read those other translations, what you don't see is the word, uh, is the word came to the palace, right? If you read the other translations, it tells us, so David sent messages and took her, and she came to him and he lay with her. This dear sister was taken. She didn't go on her own accord, right? The, the, the commentators show that this is implied by all, all the verbs that are here in the text, right? And, and when what is given to us in the Hebrew. But you don't even have to study the ancient language to sort of get the point, to see what has happened. I mean, some of y'all know what this is like, right? You know what it's like to work for powerful people. If they say jump, you say what? That's right. You better say how high. You better say it. You better say it. Some of y'all sitting there like, oh, not me. I wouldn't do it. I'm my own person. Ain't nobody going to tell me what to do. Yeah, okay. Uh, what, about those, what about that Christmas, uh, that, all the Christmas expenses? How are you going to pay off that credit? How are you going to do that? How are you going to do that? Yeah, 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 yeah. You don't want to lose your job right now. You don't want to do that, right? You're gonna make sure if your boss says jump, you better say how high, right, if you're going to pay that thing off. Uh, but look, I, I'm, I'm joking a little bit, right? But what we see before us is a serious abuse of a power dynamic, right? A serious misuse of a power dynamic. And we don't only see this in the workplace, but we also see it on the stage of global politics and especially in our homes and God help us also in communities of faith. This is an old sin. It's an ancient transgression of a neighbor. And there was no way for Bathsheba to say no. There's no way for her to do it. Her husband Uriah was, after all, a Gentile in Israel. He wasn't part of the culture. He's not from there. He's a Hittite. And he had a good job, a good job underneath the king. And he was among the, the military elite. And her father, right, Eliam was part of David's cabinet. So these men could lose their jobs, and therefore Bathsheba would lose her security. The scriptures let us know that uh, also that she, she's not reckless, right? She's not uh, uh, so good. You know, people will look at her in, in, at this situation and misread it and judge her and go, okay, you know, maybe she was, you know, loose and stuff like that. No, she wasn't reckless, right? But she was a godly woman. Right? The scriptures tell us, like, what did she just do? She had just completed the purification rites for her menstrual period. Right? If you read that and you read that, this is required in the book of Leviticus. She was faithful. She was a righteous woman who was doing what God required of her. Right? So this isn't somebody who's just looking for an opportunity. Oh, the king called me. Let, let me go. Right? No, this is not what happened. She was minding her own business and listening to the Lord. David wasn't. But she was, right? Now, we'll get to that in a minute. But even in chapter 12, when you read that, what you see, is, what you see there is God rebuking David through the prophet Nathan. And he says, 
uh, by using this, an analogy of a sheep and a shepherd, he talks about a rich man that steals a poor shepherd's beloved sheep, his beloved and only sheep. So the translation here is that Bathsheba was taken. She did not go on her own accord. There was no mutual consent. This is important because this is what abuse feels like, doesn't it? You feel like property in the hands of an owner who could care less about you, an owner that ignores your God-given value, right? Just the sheer, utter powerlessness that you feel when abused. I mean, neglect does that too. That's, it's, the, it's the other side of the same coin. There's a, there's a positive side of this, right? A, a positive, you know, abuse or there's the withdrawal, the abandonment, there's neglect. Both are the same side of the, uh, the, the two sides of the same coin. But we see, what we see from looking at Bathsheba, right, is that even the godly are not exempt from abuse or neglect. It can happen to any of us. I might be faithful. I've been walking with the Lord. I've been doing what's right, but I could still be subject to neglect and abuse. And there's a ton of statistics that I could get into regarding sexual abuse, violence against women and girls, or how parental abandonment and being bullied as a child are significant predictors of sexual abuse. And of course, statistics on the insidious nature of pornography in the sex industry but I, I also want to be careful uh, because I don't want to get into too many, like I said, I want to get too graphic uh, given like everybody that's in the room right now plus um, our setting right now. But there is a, another place for these kinds of conversations and we certainly want to have those in our church. But no matter what type right, of abuse you've experienced, this passage is here because God sees you. God sees you. Right? And, the, and the other reason why I don't I want to go too deep into some of these issues is because I also don't want to lose sight of all the ways in which we experience neglect and abuse and hence are dishonored in ways that are not sexual. Right? There's all kinds of ways in which we experience abuse and neglect. But no matter what it is that we've experienced, God sees you. And he also knows that sometimes you can't rely on the offender to do the right thing. Sometimes you just can't uh, uh, rely on the, the offender to do the right thing. Look at, look at verse 5. Look at this. This is amazing. Okay, so let me just go back to, uh, this, well, let's go back to the second part of verse 4. It says, uh, Bathsheba had just completed the purification rites after having her menstrual period. Then she returned home. Later, now obviously this must have been sometime, a few, sometime later, later when Bathsheba discovered that she was pregnant, right, she sent David a message saying, I'm pregnant. Now, she didn't have to tell him. She didn't have to tell David, like, that she was pregnant, right? You know, she could have taken the blame to protect the king. And after all, he's, he's the man. Yeah, he's got all this power. So let me just, you know, I'll just, you know what? He violated me, but I'll just take the blame. I'll just take the hit, whatever, the, you know, however my husband's going to come at me. If I'm going to be ashamed of my community, I'll just take that. He's the king. I don't, don't want to put any of that on him. However, I believe that Bathsheba must have believed that surely the anointed one of God, the one who defeated Goliath, surely the one who survived Saul, surely the one who had a special covenant 
and an anointing from the Lord of hosts would do the right thing by her. Surely he would do it. Nope. Instead, what did David do? He went all godfather on, on everybody, right? I mean, he just, right, he's, he, he bumped off her husband, right? He made, he made him take a long walk off, off, off the pier with, with cement shoes. That he, he killed her husband. And if your manager abuses you, you get to go to HR, hopefully, right? If your pastor abuses you, you can go to their presbytery, hopefully. But who would help Bathsheba? Who would be there for her? Why was she even put in this terrible situation? And this is, this is bad. This is really bad. Right? Not only was she violated, her husband was taken away. All of her security is like up in the air. She thinks she's going to get justice by the hands of the king. The king doesn't do it. Why was she even put in this terrible situation? Okay, this is important. We need to look at the, the why here for a second. And maybe already you're thinking about this, right? Because you're thinking, how, how, could, how could God allow something like this, right? What's going on? What's the purpose? What, what's the meaning in, in all this, right? How could something like this happen? Well, okay, so the answer could be very simple as we look at this situation. The answer could simply be, it was David, right? I mean, and we would be right to say that, right? And, you know, and what was the situation going on inside David's heart? And what was the situation going, out, going on outside of his heart that made this perfect storm? Well, look again at verses 1-2. It said, in the spring of the year, when kings normally go out to war, David sent Joab and the Israelite army to fight the Ammonites. They destroyed the Ammonite army and laid siege to the city of Rabbah, However, David stayed behind in Jerusalem. So it was that time of year, a particular season in which kings would normally go out for battle. Right? So uh, the commentators say that it was probably, probably because it's warmer right? in winter. Like, who wants to fight in winter? It's too cold. But yeah, things are starting to warm up. Like, okay, now this is a good time to fight. But David, as we see from this text, was out of his rhythm. His life was out of order. How has your life felt out of rhythm lately? Has your life been disordered? Does your life not match with the natural rhythms of this world? Right? And, and, and there's, no, there's no judgment even as I ask this question. Because sometimes we have seasons of chaos, right? And, and, we, and we just need to be aware that in these seasons of chaos that we might be tempted to abuse others in order to find peace. And this is what was going on in David's life. David wasn't alert, right? And, and we know this for a fact because, it, as I said, he, was, he, he had his midday rest. I mean, this, this brother, he was laying up on his couch, like late one afternoon, the text says. It, was, it, it wasn't even one o'clock in the afternoon. It was late in the afternoon. He was laying on his couch, right? He's been probably binging on Netflix since nine o'clock in the morning, right? This, this is bad, right? And it, and, it, and it looks like that the king is not only asleep at the wheel, however, but he's taking God for granted, right? His army was out there besieging Rabbah. And where was he? On the couch, 
And, I, and some of you know what, you know, uh, besieging or sieging, like what that is. It's a particular military act. It's an act of blocking, essentially blocking all the exits of a city and starving your enemies out. Right? So that, that takes a lot of work to make sure that nobody escapes. And eventually, like, the, all the resources dry out and the city just gives up. Right? So the king was needed. This is a big campaign. Now, here's the other thing that's, that's easy to miss. They were attacking Rabbah, the, the scriptures tell us. Rabbah wasn't just any city of the Ammonites. It was the royal city. This is a place where the king of the Ammonites lived. Right? So they're attacking the king of the enemy, and what's the king of Israel doing? Hanging out in his bedroom, right? walking around on the roof looking at things he don't need to look at, right? They've they've essentially launched a campaign against Washington, D.C. And what's David doing? This wasn't just any old battle. So David, like, did he kind of think that he had God in his back pocket? You know, he's taking God for granted. Oh, I don't need to go. Uh, We'll win. I'll just stay right here. What? If you're failing to order your time wisely, if you're blowing past your limitations, if you're pretending like you are God while also taking his blessings for granted, then beware. Beware. Be alert, saints. Right? Just like any one of us, regardless of how faithful whatever we are can, can be abused, we can, any one of us can also look to abuse as a tool for peace. We need to be alert. We need to be, we need to be aware. The, the, the biblical scholars say that, uh, that David may have been suffering from self-pity. So here's how that goes, right? I mean, the, here's a little phrase. Tell me if this sounds familiar. Um, y'all don't know what I do around here. Right? Does that sound familiar? Right? A little self-pity, right? It's just like, oh, people don't know. Oh, you don't know. Oh, yeah, yeah, y'all, y'all, oh, if I, yeah, if I stayed in my bed for one day, nothing would work, right? You know, David was, like, literally Israel's last hero uh, when they faced Goliath and the Philistines, right? And, and don't forget all the mess that David went through when he was on the run because of Saul and all his other enemies, even before he became king, right? Remember all these things? And, you know, so David could have said, you know, I've been through so much, Right? I, I, I've been through it all. Like, and nobody's looking out for me. Don't, don't I deserve a little something, something? Right? Don't we sometimes feel that way? See, and you see what happens. You see what's going on here. You see how self-pity starts to work as if the world owes you. Somebody owes me right? So for all, everything that I've gone through. And so now I'm going to take matters into my own hands and take a little something for myself. Like, and maybe you really have been through it. Maybe you really do need some restoration. But I want to tell you that there's a difference between sinful rest and godly rest. Right? There's a difference between the two things. But David went for the former. Right? And so uh, instead of, you know, laying around with his, his soul disconnected from God, as it were, he could have practiced what he wrote Earlier in the 59th Psalm when he says, but I will sing of your might. I will sing aloud of your steadfast love in the morning. For you have been a fortress for me and a refuge in the day of my distress. Oh, my strength, I will sing praises to you for you, oh God, are my fortress. The God who shows me steadfast love. 
Or he could, he could have practiced what he wrote in his 143rd Psalm, which says, Answer me quickly, O Lord, my spirit fails. Do not hide your face from me, or I shall be like those who go down to the pit. Let me hear of your steadfast love in the morning, for in you I put my trust. Teach me the way I should go, for to you I lift up my soul. But David didn't do that. He didn't go and seek out the loving kindness of God. He didn't seek the Lord first thing in the morning and go, teach me your ways. Give me some help, God. But rather took matters into his own hands. And Bathsheba was abused by her king because he failed to humble himself before the Lord and to seek God's loving kindness for whatever it was that was attacking his soul. I suspect Bathsheba is not alone this morning, and neither is David. We've all been in both sides at some point or another. And not to belittle what happened to Bathsheba or simply excuse those who abuse, yet I also want to be clear that there was also a systemic issue at play here. Don't forget that David was given a wife, Michael, as a reward from his king. Right? Uh, oh, you know, who was, who was then later on given to another man while he was on the run. And then when he came back to Judah, he took her back. Right? And, and then don't forget that David took Abigail as his wife after he killed her wicked husband. Right? So he already had this pattern of claiming women. It was already there, but he wasn't alone. This was normalized behavior in his culture. This was normal. And this was how a lot of political and economic exchanges went down in the ancient Near East uh, during that time. And it, it almost like it was expected. This is just what you do. If you've been abused or you have been the abuser, you don't need me to tell you this morning that it's not just about the individual. It's about our culture. Our culture. Sexual abuse Pornography, bullying, parental abandonment, verbal abuse, neglect by friends, food deserts, the shadow side of gentrification. I mean, the, all these things are both personal and systemic. Will God do something about both? I believe he says yes. Well, let, let's keep going here. How was Bathsheba's honor restored? Let's get back to her. If you know the story, you know that, uh, that she eventually lost her child because of David's guilt, right? The, the, the harm, the hurt wasn't over for her. But then eventually she did have more children together with David. And right after I said that, you might be thinking, how in the world could Bathsheba lay down with this man again? How in the world could, they, could she be willing to have a child with him, with this abuser? I mean, she must have forgiven him. But not just that. He must have truly repented and been changed after God dealt with him. And we learn this, right? After we, we read chapter, chapter 12 in, in, in 2 Samuel, we see that, 
that, that David, like his, his heart was changed. And then even after if you keep reading, you see that David became a new man, that he was changed. And then we, we have, have more evidence of this by reading the, the 51st Psalm, right? You know that David was a changed man. But here, I want to be also quick to say this. Watch out for this. Watch out. Remember that this is Bathsheba's story, okay? So it's not a, it's not a command for those who've been abused to stay in an abusive situation. Let me say that one more time, because the you know, pastors have to make this clear. This is, this is Bathsheba's story. There's something to be pulled out and extracted from here, but it is not a command for those who may be in an abusive situation to stay there. If you have opportunity to get out, get out and stay out, right? So, but here's, here it is. God changed David's heart, and Bathsheba decided to raise a family with him. This is a miracle. Right? And a would that this would happen in every single relationship, in every single situation, but it doesn't. But it happened for Bathsheba. There was peace among them, and there was peace with God, right? And so much so that they named one of their sons Shlomo, which in Hebrew means peaceful. You know him to be Solomon. And then also get this. Bathsheba becomes the mother of the wisest king in Israel, right? Perhaps in all of human history, right? He built the first temple, right? And, 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 and many, to even to this day, would say that was the best one that was ever constructed. Even Zerubbabel's temple that came later, the one, you know, the one that Herod sort of re-renovated and stuff like that was not as good as the one that Solomon built. And it, it, and it was Solomon who secured what is called the, the best times that Israel has ever known as a nation, therefore being the best earthly example of the kingdom of God. This was Bathsheba's son. Through the heart and the body of Bathsheba came shalom, peace, right, from which Solomon's name is derived, Shlomo Shalom. And during his reign, there was unparalleled prosperity for the people of God and justice for the prisoner, justice for the widow, justice for the, the orphan and for the oppressed. What fame, what promise was given through Bathsheba? But it didn't last, as we know. But God wasn't done. And now we come full circle. Who's the greater prince of peace that was born through Bathsheba? You know his name. Amen. <laughs> right? You know his name, but do you know yours? Are you walking into this new year defined by your abuse or the abuse that you've committed? Your wounds are not who you are. Are you like me, sometimes sensing a, a, a hidden place in your heart that, that feels vulnerable or unimpressive or ashamed, right? Do you, do you sense that? And do, do you want to change? Do you want to be made different? Do you want an identity that is more solid than the things that have happened to you or the things that you have committed? You see here on this um, title slide, um, anybody know what this painting is called? You can go ahead and speak it out. Anybody know? The Starry Night, right? Created by Vincent van Gogh. Now, you know, many people will look at this painting, and uh, if they see it somewhere, right, they just, 
you kind of just, you take it in, and, uh, you know, there's a, there's a lot of peace and calm that you experience as you just look at it and take in the different parts of it. And uh, one of the things that I discovered recently was some of the story behind this painting. And there's this wonderful book called uh, Rembrandt is in the Wind. So maybe some of you have heard of this book. It's by the pastor and author Russ Ramsey out of Nashville, Tennessee. And uh, one of the things that he talks about about this painting, he says that uh, Van Gogh had a falling out with his flatmate Gauguin, uh, Paul Gauguin, some of you know him, he was also an impressionist painter. Uh, they were flatmates, but they had a falling out, right? And then, what, what did Van Gogh do after that? Well, he decided to take a blade to his ear and cut off the lobe. And then he gave that lobe to a friend wrapped up in paper, and he said, supposedly, take it, it will be useful. So, and, and so here's what's amazing about this, right? Other than just that, that fantastic, like, what? You did what? Okay, so, but Van Gogh was actually, like, approaching the apex of his success when this happened. Like, he was about to become pretty famous, right? But as this happens, as he's approaching that apex, he ends up getting checked into an asylum, and, and he also suffers rejection from his neighbors. Right? The people in his community, they're like, you got to get him out of here. It's, he can't live here anymore. It's like, what's wrong with Vincent? Okay, Van Gogh got to go, right? So, so Ramsey, thanks. Uh, thanks for the courtesy laugh. So then, so then Ramsey, Ramsey writes this. Uh, he says, what did Vincent do with his humiliation as a painting, as a patient? He painted and you're looking at one of those paintings, right? This beauty, this peace, came from someone's humiliation while they rested in an asylum. God took Bathsheba's humiliation, he transformed her dishonor, and he brought forth peace. Peace for you, for me, for all the nations. As Jesus, and, and, you know, and if, if Jesus can do that for Bathsheba, won't he do it for you? If you find your asylum in him, won't he bring forth peace from your life? Jesus can bring peace to the abused and to the abuser. He can transform them both into peacemakers. That is, uh, that's something. As Jesus heals us with his loving kindness, we can be a part of healing in our city. And that's good news today. The son of Bathsheba was dishonored so that we could receive glory in exchange for our shame. The honor of the abused is written into the very story of the Savior so peace may be birthed for many and through many who put their trust in him. Is that what you want in your life for this new year? Then let's pray together. Amen. God, we thank you that you have not forgotten our wounds. We thank you, Lord, that you keep the abused and the abusers on your heart. That you have a solution to bring healing and peace, not only in spite of the things that we have gone through, but in your wisdom and your might, 
You bring peace through the things that we've gone through. We thank you, God, that you have allowed us to experience your transformation and your healing in our lives. And Father, we, we lift up the things that may be hidden in our hearts to you this morning. Ask that you would hear our cries. And Lord, that you would, that you would take us in Take us in, not to be abused, but to be changed. That you would allow us to find an asylum of grace in your hands. Lord, change us. Be with us today and throughout this new year. We know not what's coming. We don't know what kind of assaults are coming our way. But we do know, God, that if we take refuge in you, we will be made more bright more beautiful as we become more and more sons and daughters of the living God. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for calling us into a new year to walk with you and to know that as we walk with you, we will have peace. Not as the world gives, but as Jesus gives. We pray all these things in his name. Amen.